You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this session, we have two leaders in the world of learning. One, a tenured professor at a major university that doesn't really act like someone with job security. He loves to do new things and add to the experience of his students and the industry in general. And the other heads the bestower of the designation in alternative investments and has a storied career of his own. This should be fun as we discuss the COVID pivot that education and the world is making and how digital transformation has been sped up in all areas of life. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today's Monday, October 6th, and this is James Braun with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we have uh, two veterans of the education in the alternatives industry, Luis Seco with um, uh, Sigma Analysis Management, also head of the Masters of Mathematical Finance program at University of Toronto, and Bill Kelly, who runs the Kaya Association. Uh, let's start with self-introductions. Uh, we'll go with you, Luis. Uh, hi, James. Uh, pleasure to be here again. So, yes, I am a professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, before coming to Toronto, I, I did my PhD at Princeton. I taught at Caltech. Uh, and then I've been in Toronto for a, a very long time, where I fulfilled many different roles. I am a professor in the math department. As you mentioned, I'm the director of the mathematical finance program for longer than I can remember. Uh, you know, we produce uh, quants that get into the job market. We've been doing that for 20 years. I'm the director of Risk Lab, which is a research laboratory also at the University of Toronto. And then in the finance area, as you mentioned, I, I direct Sigma Analysis and Management, an asset management firm in Toronto, and I'm the CEO of the GTSJ Center, uh, which is um, a, a private organization that aims to leverage the international university network to help people with their careers perhaps the most relevant affiliation for the discussion we'll be having today. Wow, that's great. That's very diverse. Um, so I got kind of a follow-up here for you, Louis. So which one do you like the best? Which role? Is it uh, maybe the University of Toronto where you have tenure and you can just kind of roll through it? Or what, what gives you the most satisfaction? Actually, they, they all do. And the reason is I consider myself to be very fortunate because <clears throat> they all blend very well together. As you know, Sigma is a company that started out of research I did in the university. And research and innovation is what drives the company. It, it, it's also what drives everything else that I do. Education is perhaps what gives me the most amount of pleasure for one reason. And that is that I can see the effect it has on people immediately. And that is very, very rewarding. Hmm, very cool. Let's hear from Bill Kelly. Kai Association down in, are you in Amherst right now or, or Boston? Uh, I know a fair bit about Kai. I haven't taken it back in like 14 years ago, but let's uh, let's hear from, about you uh, for, for those listening. Uh, thanks, James. I uh, appreciate you having me back again. And uh, so I'm physically just outside of Boston. Kai is based in Amherst, but like most uh, in the world today, we went remote in early March. And I did stop into the office one day last week, and it was the first time I was out there uh, since early Feb. So it's uh, mm. been a 
very uh, strange and different world. But uh, but like Luis, I've got uh, a long career if tenure means anything in the in the world. <laughs> I like to think it does as I get older and older. Uh, but this is my seventh year as a CEO of the Chi Association, and we're very much into the educational space in the alternative investment arena globally. We have almost 12,000 members in 90 different countries and about 6,000 candidates uh, sitting for the exam annually, although this year is an interesting twist. And, and it's, I'm finishing up my seventh year at Kai, and, and seven is normally a, a lucky number, at least uh, in the uh, uh, North America region, although there's nothing lucky about the year 2020. Uh, but I'm sure we'll cover some of that today. Uh, but my career, the large part of it was spent in the asset management space on the, the manager GP side of the street. And, and my introduction to credentialing probably goes all the way back to the early days of my career where I was a, uh, a suffering CPA at Price Waterhouse before PwC. Uh, and uh, and I talked to a lot of people about credentialing, and that has served me well in the latter part of, part of my career because in addition to my full-time job at Kaya, I'm an independent director on a couple of different boards and chair audit committees and chair boards, and that's an interesting outlet too that's got a very interesting uh, completion portfolio to the work I do for Kaya, which ultimately is protecting the interests of the end investor. Here with Luis. We've talked a lot about private markets uh, on a lot of these podcasts and, uh, and generally with, with CASA and, of course, with Kaya has about half the group, at least half the curriculum is probably on privates. And you've been pretty active in the public space, but then you said recently that you're looking at the, the private markets, uh, maybe private equity. Um, what's, what's the lure there? What's, what's your angle? Because you guys have been in, in the, uh, like I say, in the publics for so long. Um, correct, but let me mention something. I wrote a paper on private equity many years ago, I'm guessing seven, eight years ago. Uh, and it was, I mean, I'm a mathematician. Uh, Richard Feynman said that the thing about math is that the same equations have the same solutions. And this is part of the reason why math is uh, oftentimes so useful in, in areas where you least expect it. Uh, so uh, that that was there, and it was just lurking in the background. It's something that I had fun with in the summer with a with a graduate student. But then, once technology is here, once data is everywhere, and once you have uh, machine learning techniques available to you, turns out that a lot of the um, data that exists in that relates to private companies can actually be put to use, and uh, look, the, what makes a, a, a private equity and a public equity company uh, different is essentially uh, the data, the data they report. Mm. And of course, you know, many, they are regulated differently and all of that. <clears throat> but now that data is plentiful, uh, there's nothing from stopping us developing models that could be very accurate for private equity, uh, even pri forecasting, price forecasting. And so I'm just very, very excited at uh, bringing together. It's all on the innovation space. It's all research space. It's not that we're going to launch a private equity fund tomorrow. But mm. um, I mean, I, I feel that the use of data is something that could uh, com completely look uh, change the, the way we look at, the, at these, these two spaces. And then another thing, and from a completely different uh, uh, perspective, innovation is so active right now. I'm a, I am in the university where these professors and even students with wonderful ideas and the whole concept of the startup is being redefined in Canada. 
in particular, mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a, a country where we don't have a long history of um, a startup companies or even venture capital funds as you do in, in, in the US. So I'm trying to get organized to see if we can take the concept of the venture capital fund to really the early stages of innovation. And I'm working, you know that I was director of the uh, of CICAM at the Fields Institute, which is essentially mm -hmm. the incubator, the incubator of ideas for the Fields Institute. So to the extent that this uh, incubator of ideas can be turned into a private equity initiative where innovation at the university level could be successful, I'm actually very interested in that and working very actively to create something in that space. Well, that's super. And I guess, uh, just staying with you, Luis, so you've been in the education business for years. So how has, uh, say, how have things changed? Students' expectations, teachers' abilities, uh, the output of the system, what's expected maybe by by the, the employers, the end, the end users of these, these brains, uh, what what have you seen on a longitudinal scale of change uh, over the years? Well, uh, <clears throat> so my opinion, and people may disagree with me, but this I feel very strongly about what I'm about to say. Education has not really changed in more than 500 years, but it's beginning to change now, and it's changing very rapidly. And I think is education is going to be reshaped and redefined as as we know it. Um, universities, in a certain sense, they have become rating agencies. From a certain perspective yeah. and um and now that jobs is what matters we see these race for students to go to the right university as if you're trying to get your you know um a, a moody's a rating for a bond issue it seems to be somehow very very similar um however i i i caution on one fact when which is that education is very different from learning and this is what universities should mm -hmm. be doing and the question is, are they doing that? I, I think we're going to see a lot of um, introspection. We already see introspection in the universities because of COVID right now. And uh, things are going to change. I'll tell you, I've been teaching math all my life, 35 years. And the course that I'm teaching this year is uh, communication skills and leadership. So I am changing. And the reason is, as much as I believe in math and math being useful at many, many levels, I see that. Uh, where students need help now is some communication more than math. Math they can learn on their own or through other channels, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll take that vision one one notch higher. Uh, I have always said that the 20th century was the century of science, and I'm happy to talk about that. It's a very, it was a very interesting century uh, from that perspective. But the 21st century is going to be the century of the humanities. Uh, we're going to see a very big change, and technology is going to become Actually, it already is most um, uh, impactful when it actually deals with the science of the brain. And I think all of that is going to have a very tremendous revolutionary uh, impact in the world of education. Wow, thanks. That's, uh, that's awesome. And maybe to Bill, there's that question of what you've seen over the years, uh, although you've been with Kai, like, say, for seven years, but you've obviously been uh, at least a spectator of, of the education industry for, for years. Uh, and also uh, another area, like how is Kaya working on that leadership function? Uh, because there are the, you know, the, it, it, like a savant can always learn how private equity works and stuff like that, but then actually putting it to action and being able to uh, converse with your, your peers is important too. So how was, how has Kaya been, been uh, attacking that? Well, you know, maybe I'll address the general first and picking up picking up with some of the things that uh, Lewis said. So I've been 
an observer, but also a consumer of the product as well. And having paid four tuitions at the so-called Jerry Seinfeld price, meaning the full ticket over the last, uh, say, 10 years or so, that inflation is pretty much close to zero uh, in real terms in the U.S. But like clockwork, every single year, those tuition bills went up five, six percent. And and I knew that there was going to be a come up in some day because you look at where the demographics are going. And I've still got one young one in, in high school. So I've got one more uh, rodeo, say, so to speak, at the uh, at the tuition window. But demographics are shifting, and I think it was going to force the colleges, maybe at their own pace, to think about their model and making sure that they were providing a, a very good consumer experience for the buyer of a very expensive product. COVID has accelerated this. And if you have kids now going to mm-hmm. school remotely, it's a very big level setter. And some of these basic skill programs could be had at, at a big name university or a community college with not a lot of uh, difference in between. And then some of the things we talked about earlier, the skill set that the employer wants at the end of that college degree may or may not be what you learn inside of the classroom. And and I think maybe one of the signposts, EY, I think it was, it was one of the big four mm-hmm. came out not too long ago saying, you don't even need a college degree to apply for a job here. And in some respects, they'd prefer that you didn't have it because it might pollute the way you're thinking. And they would rather be able to have somebody come in without a preconceived notion on certain things that were maybe jammed into their skull at $60,000 a year at a, at a big name university. So so I think we're going to see that COVID has changed a lot of the rules of engagement. Uh, for Kaya, it's been a very interesting experience for us in real time. And, and James, as a member, you know that we give the exam twice a year, March and September. Yeah. And in March, well, in, in March, we were all uh, in the in the uh, test centers with Pro, with uh, Pearson View. And we started that exam cycle with 385 of these centers open around the world. By the time we got to the mm. third week of a four week cycle, there were five left open and it pretty much came uh, to, to an abrupt end. And fortunately for us, the perseverance of many of these candidates said, I want to take the exam in September. As we started to approach uh, the summer months, it was very clear COVID was not going to be leaving anytime soon. And even if it started to wind down and clearly is moving in the opposite direction, the concept of social distancing mm-hmm. inside an exam center was a non-starter. So we decided to go to what is called OP, online proctoring, and offered that as an option to every single candidate sitting for our exam. So if you were in New York, Boston, Chile, Borneo, uh, Mumbai, you could sit in the comfort of your own home and take this exam remotely. About, I think, close oh, wow. to 40% of the candidates opted for that. And we're in the process of just finishing up uh, the testing. It just wrapped up last week. So we'll, there'll be a lot to analyze. But, but again, I think COVID forced us to take a step back and say, if we want to be relevant to the asset owners and the end investors and and push forward on a, on a cause and a case for education, but then said, you know what, until COVID clears, we're going to take two or three cycles off, which is a year and a half in our lifetime. I think that's an awful proposition for the end investors. So there's a lot that's been done with some of these uh, tools around artificial intelligence and, and nothing's perfect, but we felt it was far enough along that it was worth the risk. We did it in a calculated way with some mitigating uh, controls in place and we'll see what the future holds. But I think that's going to be part of our offering going forward. And I think the whole world in high stakes exam is eventually going to move there. I just think that we were right and we were early. Yeah, you're right. You got to 
you got to think ahead and, and make the make the moves. And we, we did that as well. I just flipped everything to digital. And we've, I don't know, I shouldn't say COVID's been good to us, but we've been able to do a lot here with uh, as many hands. And uh, and it's just been actually kind of kind of great to get so many people from different areas. And and I guess other places like you, it was originally like when I did, it was all digital as well. Like you'd you'd be, but you'd be in the in the test center. And other ones were pen and paper in the big hall, so that's obviously not going to happen. So they probably have to leapfrog exactly to uh, to where you're right now. Um, but I, I mentioned, and this for Louis, uh, like my my son's in, in Switzerland and that, and you know he's he had to go back because his first class starts at like two a.m. our time, so that's not going to happen. Do you have um, students for your for your uh, master's in mathematical finance program or for others that? that are in China or India. I have a buddy who actually teaches a college <laughs> course and they're actually in India logging in. He's never had so many uh, students, I know. but uh, how do you guys manage that? Do they, do they come here or what's, what's your kind of your makeup? Of your so it's a very, very interesting question. I, so I lecture, I'm actually giving a course in my own program and we have students in uh, five time zones. Uh, we have students in Australia, in China, in Vancouver, in Toronto and Europe. And uh, it is, and we just, we just manage that. It is, it is difficult uh, finding the time that works for and for all of them. Uh, but you know, they, they, like, like with everything, these changes on both sides of the spectrum. We've also learned that the traditional teaching that we used to do, uh, physical teaching, when you have, uh, you know, lecture which are three hours long, and I, I was. I love three hour long lectures because it allows me to cover a, a lot of ground. They don't work anymore when it's uh, when you do these things online. So we yeah, move yeah. to do things in small uh, doses. I, I never lecture for more than an hour. My target is half an hour, 45 minutes. So half an hour of lecturing, 15 minutes for questions, and then get mm. people to uh, learn on their own. And it goes back to what I said earlier, the difference between learning and educating. Um, Learning is something that people look. People go to YouTube to learn these days, uh, and I I think that our role is uh, the role of educators, and that's slightly different. I I, I like to say that, um, and goes back all to the, to the question about the education premium that Bill mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Um, if you're learning, say Python, because every job you apply to requires Python, guess what? You're too late. Okay. Uh, you should have you should have oh. known Python already. So <laughs> I don't know Python. <laughs> well, I, I neither do I. Uh, I. I know I don't need it. Uh, I, I know who knows, and that's the you know it's just as good for me. Yeah. Uh, but see, the, the value really lies in someone telling you what is relevant and learning that before it, just before it becomes relevant, because that gives you a tremendous competitive edge. And if you look at the I mean, I, I, I did my PhD at Princeton, and it were, there was one thing I learned being at Princeton is that we were learning things there that only we knew they were relevant. The rest of the world didn't know. This is what research is all about. You're always ahead of the curve, and being ahead of the curve gives you a tremendous competitive advantage, meaning the one which is measured in units of time. Time is the only thing you can buy yourself. At the end of the day, so if if um, when it comes to the the educational or the education premium, I, I if I have to simplify and be a little bit controversial, I would have to say that the education premium is measured on the unit of time. What mm -hmm. do you gain? What time do you gain? What advance? Um, 
um, what advantage do you get by you know, learning from one place or the other or being educated from one place or the other? And this is, this is what drives us. So from that perspective, why would I have to teach for three hours in a row? Maybe half an hour is all I need. And then people can complete that work on their own. It's easier for them. It's easier for me. And that way, it allows me to uh, record. We record all our lectures now and make them available offline. Right. And it allows me to be relevant even when I'm not there. And uh, the, the learning, which I consider to be the easiest part of the whole experience, can be done elsewhere. That's great. So, you, yeah, you chop it up. You're, you're not at the TikTok stage. That's probably good because it's probably hard to put, put forth those kinds of uh, ideas. Well, you know, uh, you give me, give me, give me a good portfolio of uh, TikToks, and then you can probably do something more, more complicated. Because, I mean, you need substance, and substance is not measured in milliseconds, <clears throat> right? But there is some element uh, to that, and we're we're exploring that, and I'm a firm believer that we're going to end up with a completely different system. Yeah, what to you, Bill? Because uh, I remember. Um... When I did uh, Kaya, it was back in uh, 2006, and we, we had a whole area on CDOs. And then when the blowups happened in 2008, I was like, boy, how come everyone doesn't know all this stuff? Um, but to, to Luis's uh, point, how do you uh, kind of relate that competitive edge to employers and say, you should be hiring people that have Kaya, you, people should do Kaya or, or one of the other two designations, and, and um Kind of how do you how do you, how do you get them to, to come aboard of that? Because it is they 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 may not know exactly what's in the curriculum unless they've done it. So uh, how do you connect with them? Yeah, so it's it's really probably a two pronged approach. So at age twenty, we're moving more and more toward what I would describe as a a B two B relationship, where historically it was a B two C, where we had an excellent program but nobody knew about us. So we had to go out and find every candidate who became we had to a find member. You. Exactly. Yeah, and we had to do it one body at a time. But we're now at at a size where we can lead with content. And interestingly, and this is a, a, a great problem to have, but it is a bit of a problem too, that the world is coming to us now because, uh, and Lewis referenced this a moment ago with with, uh, with private equity. And an interesting aside, I, I put this out on LinkedIn over the weekend that the Wilshire 5000 index, which is owned and licensed by Wilshire Associates, was bought by a private equity firm last week. So now you have the badge of the private of the public equity markets being owned by private equity and the Wilshire 5000 a misnomer. There's only 3400 names in there and the, the home of capital creation uh, and value creation, uh, capital formation of value creation is really now in the private markets full stop. Mm -hmm. And it's at a time where the retirement responsibilities are more and more being given to the individual through a DC plan as opposed to the nanny state defined benefits. So now you have many people who are looking at a risk-free rate that's close to zero, a public equity market that you're getting the leftovers and how do they get access to alternatives? And I think many investors are coming to us in some case, for the wrong reasons. And they think that they still want to earn a 4 or an 8% return and the 60-40 model, best case, net of inflation or before inflation is going to be maybe three. 
So they're coming mm -hmm. to alternatives to make up that difference. And it doesn't work that way. If they're looking for a leverage beta play, you can get that, but it's fraught with risk attached to it. And an interesting point, I forget if we mentioned this in a prior discussion, James, that uh, Schroeder's, uh, and I can provide you a link if the listeners want to find it, but they did a report mm -hmm. early this year, but after COVID broke out. And they surveyed 23,000 individuals around the world who had at least 10,000 euros or more to invest and asked them their expectations for returns over the next 10 years. Again, post-COVID. The average answer was compounding at 10%. And, and I, I could say it because I'm one of them uh, in terms of citizenship. The fools in the United States are expecting something north of 15% over the next five years. Good luck with that. Is that every year or over the five years? <laughs> every year, compounding every year. And you don't even need to ask me, James, if that's nominal or real, because either way, it's fantasy land. So yeah. I, I think that we have people that are coming into the alt space for the very first time. They're coming probably with uh, different uh, expectations and what can be delivered. And all the more that we have to be out there as professionals talking about what alternatives can do in a portfolio and what they can't do. But giving uh, investors, and I think, Lewis, you, you alluded to this, giving them greater access through democratization, we must be doing, doing that. And the regulators are helping that cause. But unless we do it wrapped in education, wrapped in transparency, it's simply not going to end well. So this gives us, back to your question a little bit, James, this gives us a mm -hmm. lot to talk about. If we're up at the, the C-suite, the CIOs of an organization, and talking to them about what's going on in the marketplace and some of these broader trends and how it impacts their business, how it impacts ours, uh, as educators, there's a tremendous amount of alignment and uh, and the proof statement that falls out of the bottom almost becomes the credential. But we're not trying to convert uh, the, uh, the, the uh, C-suite at the Carlisles as an example, but we want them to be apostles for why education matters, why transparency matters, and, and clearly on that list of things that their professors should be thinking about is the CHI exam. So it, it happens by proxy. Awesome. Yeah. Now yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the do it yourself, the, the DC, well, anybody really, they're getting, they say the, the leftovers and also the left tail because they don't end up investing when things are down, they end up selling and that kind of stuff. So they, they really, uh, and then I was on the panel earlier too, and I, I, we have a kind of a hashtag we use also not alternative, like since when is having long, short credit an alternative when you have rates at zero and all these other things that are going against actually holding any sort of bonds. Um, so, uh, how about Luis? James, you, uh, yeah, James actually, I, there's, I, Bill's example is so good. I would like to take it and notch higher. Um, it's very interesting. So that, that's a, I, I didn't know about that study, by the way, Bill, thanks for bringing it up, but it's very interesting what would have happened if they had asked the same people, how much do they expect to pay? as investment fees over the same a period mm. of time, okay? I have no idea what the answer would be. I don't even think people know that they actually pay investment fees. But if you were to ask that, you're probably going to come with a, a number, which I think is very, very low. But then turn the question around. What if there's someone out there that would actually give you what you expect to make? Let's say that there is a company that will actually achieve that you know, 15% per year, and that's their alpha contribution to you. 
Um, how would people value uh, that and what fee would they be prepared to pay for that? What my experience shows that uh, people would be still indifferent. Uh, the, the, the return that's given to them and the fees they pay, they don't see that there's a relationship between the two. And then it goes back to the value of producing alpha that also Bill mentioned earlier. And maybe to some extent that will tell you something about the future of the asset management industry. Where is that going? Where is their value proposition going? Uh, how is it uh, valued by consumers? And what is the profitability of the asset management industry going forward? I would love yeah. to know that. But that's a fantastic example. Yeah, and I agree with everything you said, Lewis. And it's, I think uh, because of the efficiency of the public equity markets and the invasion of indexation, it's led the average consumer to think that every investment product is a commodity. And I think if you ask them also to price uh, what they would pay for alpha versus beta, you might get close to the same answer. So I, I think that we have conditioned the consumer that we're in a commoditized business. And if you can find alpha, you should be willing to pay four and forty for it if you can guarantee a repetitive yeah, exactly. investment process. Exactly. But nobody thinks that way. And I'll, I'll give you one last example, Lewis. I'd be curious your reaction to this. I, I write this periodic blog post, and I just put this one in there uh, to this morning, so it's it's fresh and top of mind. But Dalbar, and if some people have taken knocks at, at how they calculated it, but but I think it's still a fair point. So Dalbar looked at the average. Uh, equity mutual fund holders return, not what the fund did, but what the equity fund holder got over a 30-year period from, I think it was 1984 to 2014. So a relatively recent vintage period of time. So over those 30 years, the, the average return that the equity mutual fund holder got versus just staying for 30 years in the S&P 500, they fell short by market timing primarily by over 700 basis points. So if you began that race where the hair was the investor tacking in and out of the market, every blip and every move, uh, they, at the end of 30 years, 100,000 would have become something just shy of 300,000. The tortoise who just put the money into an S&P 500 and went to sleep and woke up 30 years later would have almost $2.5 million. So I think if we could teach the investor nothing else other than investing is a business of patience and long-term outlook is so, so critically important. And particularly, even if we provide a secondary market for private equity, I think we're doing those investors a disservice because one of the beauties of private equity in my mind is you're saving the investor from themselves, where if you've got uh, a major drawdown in a day or some talking head on CNBC says something stupid, they're stuck. They can't sell. And I think that in and of itself, I think that is probably one of the biggest value killers is this, uh, the, this propensity for most people to think they're investors. They act more like market participants and they market time their way well short of, uh, of where their expectations should actually, be. That, you're absolutely right. And I, I agree with that. And then I'll actually, I'll give you another, another study back. This is my, I don't know the source, but I heard this many times, which is that if you compare the Canadian, I mean, we're in Canada, the Canadian pensions with the U S pensions, that the, uh, the return of a Canadian pension is about 1% higher than the U S pension, but that comes at a cost, uh, because they internalize a lot of that. And the cost is uh, the Canadian pension spends 20 basis points more on salaries than mm. than the U.S. pension. And then if you, you, you take that equation around, that they can, without telling you, the 
well, that's the that's the management fee. <laughs> so yep. you keep yeah. it internally, right? And then uh, the 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 twenty basis points that you pay, well, that is twenty percent performance fee. That's what it is. So it is, and it, that's a great trade. You know, I, I make one percent more, I pay twenty basis points more, and uh, that is a trade that I will do all day long. And that is, I, I, I don't, I don't have a reference for that. I just heard it many times. I, I, I think it's true. But if you take that, that also uh, you can you can take turn that into an institutional policy of when to hire and when not to hire, and what you want to internalize and what you want to outsource, and these are things that are just not given enough thought. Yeah, I agree. Well, Luis, when you uh, you see the the kids over the, over the last many years, they've uh, they go on to other things, and so the the ones coming out of masters mathematical finance, I imagine they go into finance somewhere, but you know, there's quite a few. Um, that you see, so are they going to places like like, uh, or maybe with just just math degrees to to Google? Is that that's still happening a lot? Um, or are they actually going into asset management? There's a lot of these AIs, or or is it like one that's actually really cheap uh, and might do good things for people? The uh, the robo advisors uh, where you kind of have the the mix of um, of uh, AI and yeah. and asset management. So uh, yeah, well, uh, it's a, a great question, and I can tell you, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an answer, which is the answer over time. Um, Twenty years ago, the majority of uh, the graduates went into the banking industry. Uh, starting approximately mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, they started to go to the pension industry, which in Canada is a very big deal, as you know, uh, to the point mm -hmm. that we have a lot, a lot of our graduates now working for basically all of the Canadian pensions or most of the Canadian pensions. And then we saw that there was uh, maybe starting five years ago, they started to get into the asset management industry because the asset management industry was getting sophisticated to the point that they needed this technology. But now over the last few years, is it's evolved into incredibly diverse um, areas. We have, as, well, as you know, we have students who went to Google, Amazon, uh, many of them, they decided to become entrepreneurs. They are creating their own companies now. Some got into cryptos. It's really everywhere. But I think, you know, it's just a reflection of what's happening with uh, finance, especially that area, which is the mix of finance and technology, which is our students are best at that fintech, rec tech, all of that space. You know, it is, it, it's, I mean, it's Facebook, a financial company. They have their own currency. So you could always see even their own country. So uh, what what's to stop our graduates from, from going there? Uh, what's us to stop our graduates from managing uh, Google's uh, or Apple's cash? Uh, and this is beginning to happen. And I, I think the the we're going to, we're seeing a lot of barriers, traditional barriers, be destroyed. Not just the educational barriers and the distinction between universities and industries. The typical division between industries is also, in my opinion, disappearing. Things are getting to be much more. Um, interdependent, interdisciplinary, and far more interesting. How about your advice, Luis? What should students of any age be doing to, to keep up? Um, you mentioned <laughs> Python, and there's so many others, but is there some sort of maybe overarching uh, no, advice? Yeah, so, so yes, I, I of course, they, they should always speak Python and lots of other things, but they should also learn music and uh, arts and <clears throat> and uh, read a lot and be, be, become a human being. Um, 
Go, goes back to what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. In the 20th century, uh, the rule for success is learn something and be the best at it. It was it was the the century of science. You know, you have to go to the moon, and that that's it. That's a very complicated thing. You have to focus on that. Do nothing else. Now things are much more diverse. Be a good person. That's rule number one. Many people forget that. And as mm -hmm. as as a person, just educate yourself. Don't just learn things. Educate yourself. Um, learn Python be before Python becomes Python. <laughs> but then also be aware of uh, you know the humanities achievements in the arts and in the literature and, and things like that. Very cool. How about over to you, Bill? What's your advice for people who of any age might, because uh, like, I, I did the Kaya when I was like 35, so maybe late, but uh, what, what do you think? Well, you know, it's interesting that I think there's a cohort of professionals that may be, you know, anywhere from the age of 30 up to 50 that still have a decent amount of runway in front of them in terms of a career. And they've got a tech native crowd coming up behind them who are going to be much more comfortable with these tools. So even if you feel that you've gotten up to, say, the C CIO suite and you don't need to know these things, you're going to need to manage these people. Uh, and you don't need to know as much as they do, perhaps, but you need to know enough that you can be confident to ask questions and provide proper oversight. And uh, you don't need to be an expert, but you got to continue to read. And I think that unless you have been a bit of a perpetual student uh, you may have been able to get away with it. I think this next uh, coming uh, decade, much less so, because I just think the pace of change is going to put us in uh, a trajectory unlike we, we've ever seen in this industry. And if, unless you get with the program, I think you're going to get uh, knocked over. Great. Thanks. Well, on that note, uh, just keep learning. Just keep learning. That's, uh, that's our advice from, from both of you, I imagine. Thank you very much for uh, being on this podcast with us. We look forward to having the both of you separately or or together again uh, sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thank and Louis, it would be a pleasure to be back with you. Fantastic, uh, Bill. That was uh, very, very illuminating from, from, from you. I, I enjoyed this. Thank you.